Welcome to season three of V Love Hub, a podcast about life after 40, or what to expect when you can no longer expect. I'm Ann Katari. And I'm Liz Ilgenfritz. In this series, we'll be talking about sexual well being for women in midlife and beyond. If you're enjoying our podcast, please rate and review us. Thanks. V Love Hub. Welcome to another episode of V Love Hub. Who do we have today, Liz? Well, Anne, I am so excited to welcome our next guest, Samantha Manowitz. Samantha taught the BDSM and kink module of ballistic sex educator training at IC, and I'm thrilled to welcome her to talk to us all things BDSM and kink. So welcome, Samantha. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, and I'm glad you enjoyed my class. It's one that I really love teaching. We're going to get into questions. I would love to give just a quick bio of Samantha here. She is a current uh, PhD candidate at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wittash School of Social Work with a graduate specialization in sexual diversity studies. She's also on the faculty of the Institute for Sexuality Education and Enlightenment, an educator and ASECT certified sex therapist who is working towards certification as a sex therapy supervisor. As an educator, Samantha has trained mental health professionals, sex educators, and alt-sex communities on healthy communication, abuse prevention, sexual diversity, and neurodiversity. Her research interests center on understanding and assessing abuse and non-consexual coercive control in BDSM, the topic we are about to get into. Yes, yes. All right. So first of all, what is the definition of DBSM? BDSM. So BDSM is actually a weird compound acronym. So the way that I initially learned it was bondage, dominance, sadism, masochism, but it can be bondage, discipline, sadomasochism. Uh, There are a bunch of others, but of course, as soon as we go live, I forget all of them because that's how my brain works. Thanks. I hate it. Um, but it, it, it's kind of a, a an umbrella term for a constellation of um, you know types of engagement that involve usually the giving and receiving of some form of sensation or intimacy or role play, if that makes sense. So that totally makes sense. You know, a lot of people will think about Fifty Shades of Grey from like two thousand eight to two thousand ten. When I was coming into the kink community, it was the movie Secretary. So, like, a lot of people have their different, like, kind of pop culture touchstones of what kink is. Yeah. And I love that you brought up Secretary. I remember that movie. That was fascinating. Well, I would love for you to just, like, let's just start. So, you defined the BDSM for us. Let's hit a couple other terms that are commonly used. Um, Kink, fetish, talk to us about those. So kink is kind of a broader term that includes sort of fetish and other types of alternative sexualities. However, in the BDSM communities, you'll usually hear kink and BDSM used pretty much interchangeably. So like there's like a slight difference in that kink is a bit of a broader concept, but you'll see most people use both of them and generally referred to as the same thing. Fetish, like colloquial, colloquially, I'm not talking about like DSM diagnoses, is some form of arousal or, or increased desire that's centered on some form of like 
object or item or concept or fantasy. For some people with a fetish, that thing is required in order to like get achieve sexual satisfaction, have an orgasm, etc. For some, it's just kind of like extra bonus hot, you know? Got it. And anything and everything in between. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So for example, um, I once dated somebody who had a boot fetish. And so whenever I would go on a date, you know, if I were going to wear boots, it was basically guaranteed that we were going to have sex and play at some point <laughs> or other. You know what I mean? Um, and he was able to, you know, he would constantly complain, like, why do none of like my, my hot plate partners have boots? And we're like, boots are expensive. And he's like, fine, I'll just buy all my plate partners boots. So like, I had a really awesome boot collection once upon a time. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love it. And you know what you're, what you're saying is like, that's a great example. And it actually leads into a question that I had, in my, which I feel is getting a little bit ahead, but you know, we'll dance all around is I wonder, did you then find yourself wearing boots when you wanted to have sex and you wanted to engage in play? Um, yeah. Like with that partner, definitely. With other people, mm -hmm. not so much because they had different contexts and interests. But for me, yeah, I, I did. It did. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I mean. Like if, like if you knew you were going to see him and you were like, yeah, and I'm feeling it, like I'm going to wear my yep. boots because exactly. I know that's his thing. Um, and for him, you know, that was one of those where it wasn't a, this is absolutely necessary to have sex. It just was like fueled the arousal. There are some people who, if they had a boot fetish, require their partners to wear boots in order to have sex. This partner was not that. Interesting. Okay. I love it. Well, and I think what that reminds me of, I think it's a signal to the conversation that... Um, came up in the your training module that you taught, which is you talk about BDSM mm -hmm. as a dance. And I would love for you, that was new to me. And I don't know, Anne, if that's new to you, but it's probably new to our listeners. So can you, Yeah. okay, let's get into it. So um, I think about kink and BDSM as a vocabulary of connection. And just like any other vocabulary, it can be used to be hot and awesome and connecting and fulfilling. And people can also misuse that vocabulary as well. But when we think about power dynamics, I think about it's BDSM is less like a power coup d'etat, like you do what I say, and it's more of a lead follow dynamic. So even though the, the dom or the top or the lead is the one who's sort of like dictating the choreography of what's going on in kink or in a scene, it doesn't mean that the follower is a passive participant. Like you still need the follower to lend their own flair and their own energy to the scene. And depending on what kind of dance there is, that follow can have more or less freedom. Like there are certain types of blues dances where a, where a lead will sort of lead out the follow and be like, you do you go solo. And there are other types of dances that are a bit more rigid where there's a little bit less room for like, you know, a solo performance. And it's kind of the same thing in BDSM. Sort of different types of kink and different types of play will lead to sort of different types of kinky dances. Does that make sense? 
it totally makes sense and it leaves me wanting to like know a lot more and and do you have a question about that no this is all new to me i don't even know what to ask <laughs> of course it's it's such a sprawling topic you know especially for like a Right. A, a quick podcast segment, but I'll do yeah. my best. Well, I know. always think like examples are really great, you know, especially for our listeners. You can put them in a moment. So like, t- give me an example of a dance when like, what is it the lead and follow dynamic? So the lead would be the top because the top is in charge of what happens during a scene. But the reason why I like to use the the metaphor of dance is because of how some misconceptions that people have in terms of what power is and how power works and who has the power in kink. There are some people who will think that BDSM is like purely patriarchal and dominance are abusive and raw, and that is not Mm -hmm. true, not true at all. To counter this, this narrative, there are folks who will perpetuate the concept that the submissive or the bottom is the one in the scene that has all the power because the submissive is the one who has a safe word. So the safe word is like a stopgap that if something is going wrong, you know, you say the safe word and the scene stops or pauses sort of depending on what's negotiated. And I think that this is kind of a good, um, the author Terry Pratchett talks about lies to children, which are pieces of information that aren't true, but you kind of need that stepping stone before it's replaced with like the actual Mm -hmm. fact. I don't remember if you all learned about like the Bohr model of the atom when you were in high school, like with the rings and stuff. Well, like if you look at like in it, when I was taught the atom, you had like the nucleus in the center and you had like rings, but that's not true because that's not what an atom looks like in real life. So like that model with the rings is like a lie to children. I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. So the submissive has the power is that kind of lie to children. It's not, it's not bad, but it's not the full story. Because in in reality, the power and that energy is a co-creation between everybody who is in the Mm -hmm. scene. Just like a dance is a co-creation between the lead and the Mm -hmm. follow. You're you're kind of creating this experience together. Mm -hmm. So it's important to get people used to thinking about submissives having power and agency when they're getting into Mm -hmm. the scene. But as you go along, the, the... reality of that dynamic is a little bit more complex. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It really makes sense. And it is totally a, you know, a bit of a mind fuck. I really get that. Yeah, it and is. I guess to a certain extent, it's like if the submissive isn't in the scene with the dom, there's no scene. So there yeah. just that yeah. in and of itself has energy. So bringing that energy, exactly. you know, I don't know, energy power, whatever you want to you know, use those words interchangeably. That's that, that feels like power. Yeah. Foucault called uh, BDSM a uh, technology of pleasure, which I, I, I really liked. I love that. I love that. When does somebody know that they're into kink? I mean, at like what age? Is there like an average age or it just varies? I was actually looking into this because there's not a whole lot of research on this. But the one piece of research that I could find showed that most people had some sort of kinky fantasy between ages like 13 to 16, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they did anything kinky. That tended to be a little bit older. Um, Again, the only studies I found on this were very, very small, um, but that's kind of the best data we've got. Um, How is kink beneficial for communication, empowerment, 
and mindfulness? So, yeah, in order to engage in a BDSM scene, and and this is going to kind of blend together some of the talking points that you had sent. So um, the arc of like a scene is negotiation, play, and then aftercare. And negotiation is the piece where everybody kind of gets on the same page and sort of figures out what everybody is doing. So the negotiation piece is all about communication because you have to be able to communicate what it is that you want, what you don't want, what you need to do. And and in order to kind of successfully navigate those negotiations, you really need to be able to build that vocabulary. And a lot of BDSM events tend to be really educational in nature. So there are tons of like, you know, workshops and classes that you can go to. And I'm also seeing at more kink events, communication specific workshops, as opposed to here's how you throw a flogger. Here's how you tie somebody in a rope harness. And I'm really happy to see that more. So Building communication is a really essential component of being a functional kinky person. In terms of benefits, there was actually a really interesting study I found from my research um, on how people who practice BDSM get the same benefits from it as somebody who practices like dispositional mindfulness and meditation. And to me, this makes a lot of sense because when you are engaged in the scene, and dealing with in that activity, it forces you to be really, really present and really in the moment, no matter which side of the scene that you fall under. And I've, I've experienced this myself as a practitioner, and I've also seen this with clients. I've had folks talking about their submission as almost like a, a meditative practice. So it's pretty intuitive to me. I was like, oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It was, even though it was kind of a pilot study, I was like, oh, it's nice to have my preconceived notions validated by science. That's very cool. (laughs) And for some people it can be hot and it can be playful. It's also um, a place of a lot of creativity. So a lot of people who are like writers and creatives, people who do like role-playing games, like tabletop role-playing games, tend to also be into BDSM because, you know, figuring out what you want to do in a scene or how that works does require a bit of creativity and a little bit of that, that, that spark. Can you give us an example, like maybe just lay out a couple of scenes that you've either seen or heard of, or is there something that's typical, like just to give our listeners a little flavor of, of, of play? Um, I don't know if there's like a typical scene, but like BDSM is called play for a reason, as opposed to big, serious, hard, awful thing. Um, and I, I, this is also an example of somebody being really creative with a safe word. Um, I was playing with somebody, and at this year moment, this is more years ago than I'm willing to admit, and I'm, what is it with the passage of time? So I was a, a Russian major back in the day, and I used to be pretty fluent in Russian. This was when Putin was still fascism curious and not what it is now. And so there was a scene that I was doing where it was a role play where my scene partner was an American interrogator and I was like a Russian spy, like (laughs) having to give up some kind of secret and I'd get punished for like saying the wrong answer kind of thing. But there was a point where um, the play partner took out a knife and threatened to cut off a piece of my hair. And for some reason, 
that was a hard limit for me. I was like, and I broke character because I was speaking Russian through the entire scene. And I shouted in English, no. And he looked at me and he looked at the knife and he clicked it shut. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I've just been told by my superiors that we're not allowed to use that interrogation technique. I'm going to have to try something else. And I had a moment of like, that was really good. So there's improv too, is what I'm hearing. Exactly. You know, so it's that kind of give and take and that kind of play. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let's talk about, because these are the things that were, because it's not, this has not ever been really been in, in my purview either. And it was new to me in the training. What, the, the whole concept of the aftercare was new to me and and so amazing. I was like, tell me more about that. Yeah. So aftercare is, um, if you've ever done yoga, the like corpse pose that you do, like at the end of a practice where you sort of let everything integrate and it gives you kind of a a, a transition from, you know, yoga space to the real world. And it's sort of the same concept in BDSM where after a scene, you've got endorphins running high, you've got people who are still sort of in that headspace, and the aftercare gives people a chance to kind of transition and process and see how things are doing and sort of get everybody back to where you're sort of like settled and grounded and sort of ready to walk in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. there's aftercare that happens immediately after a scene, but there are also some times when aftercare happens like a week, a month, a few days after, because sometimes when you go through a scene, your brain isn't done processing like after that initial aftercare, especially if somebody, something or somebody like really pushed your buttons. So like, I knew somebody who did um, an intense humiliation scene for the first time where he was asked to like verbally berate and humiliate this person because that was the thing that they were super into. And as a result, their aftercare lasted like a month and a half where my, my friend would be processing with this partner of, I am still a good person. You are still Mm -hmm. okay with me, even Mm -hmm. though I called you these awful things. And the play partner was like, yeah, no, that was super fun. I really enjoyed it. Like, this is something that I wanted. And that sort of helped him to feel more comfortable continuing with that play and continuing with that partner. Yeah, that sounds really important. And last I heard, they were engaged to be married. So, you know. It worked. It worked. That sounds really, really important. If a person is interested in role play, how do you go about finding a partner? It really depends. Nowadays, everything is online. There's a website called FetLife, which is kind of the 10-ton gorilla of BDSM social media. But there are also a lot of other spaces, especially now, like all of the young kids are using like Discord and telegram channels and so those are some spaces there are also events that are called munches which are sort of low stakes hangouts usually at like a bar or a restaurant so everybody comes in street clothes and that's usually where you get to meet people in the local community get a lay of the land see what they're in whatever given city or town that you're in you know, as with any event with munches, your mileage may vary. There are some really awesome ones and there are some ones that I've heard not some not so great things about. So it, it runs the gamut. 
What about if you're in a relationship and you're curious and you want to start bringing some of that play in? Like what would be maybe like, you know, three you know, sort of tips on like how to step into it? It really depends. It also sort of depends on where you and your partner are at. Sometimes being like, hey, I found this cool thing. What do you think? You know, have you considered trying this? Or, hey, I was reading up on this bondage thing and that sounds really fun. I want to learn how to do it. Um, so a lot of times people will sort of do that like testing mm -hmm. of the water to see how they mm -hmm. people react. And sometimes it's because there's a fear of that rejection. So if you're able to be like, hey, there was that hot scene in the movie we saw where, you know, that person was chained to a rock. That would be a cool mm -hmm. role play. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Unless you're not into it, in which case I was just joking. <laughs> Pregnant pause. Yeah. Pause for reaction. So so it, it kind of depends. It depends on your partner. <laughs> depends on the relationship that you have on your partner, have with your partner. Yeah. I actually, I'm, I'm curious about that part too, because it feels like sometimes this might be something that comes up for people in a relationship because the relationship is a little stale or a little dry, or maybe there's some intimacy issues, some frustrations in the relationship, et cetera. Would you say that that would be a good time to come into it? Or? It depends. Sometimes it can be really, really hard to kind of switch gears in a relationship where you're used to having sex one way, mm -hmm. and then you have to kind of change how you relate to a partner. Mm -hmm. Esther Perel, um, in one of her talks on mating in captivity, talked about um, the idea of novelty in the relationship. And she talked about novelty not as like, getting a whole bunch of like sex toys and sexy lingerie and boom novelty. She talked about it as looking at your partner with a new set of eyes, mm -hmm. finding a way of recontextualizing how you perceive your partner so that creating that space is even possible. Mm -hmm. So when I think about how to create a dynamic, you know, to fix a stale relationship, I think about novelty in that sense of the word. So if the, the, the vocabulary of BDSM is used as a way to like reintroduce yourself to your partner and like engage from a new place and a new perspective, then absolutely I think it can work. If it's just, hey, what if I bring a flogger and the next time we have sex, would that be cool? That, that doesn't tend to work as as well. I think those are two great opposite, like just little, uh, you know, sentences you put there. That would be, that sounds like a great idea. That sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> it's like, you know, good idea, bad idea. But I, it's also important to note that BDSM is not sexual for everybody. For some, uh, and there's research on this, there are a couple of papers on BDSM as like a serious leisure. So there are some people who treat BDSM as the way that they would treat like taking a martial arts class. It's, it's based on like the skill and the connection, but it's completely not sexual for them. Mm -hmm. So if you do, if you are with a partner and you are not kinky and that partner is, it's really important to know where they fall on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Because it could be that they might want to go to the BDSM club just mm -hmm. to like have somebody flog them and tie them up. And it's purely for the sensation and the experience, but it's not 
erotic at all. And there are folks for whom kink and sex are just inseparable. So also knowing where you are on that spectrum and where your partner is on that spectrum, I think are both really important. Wow. And there, there's the communication skill factor again, as you that, said. Exactly. So important. Yeah. Yeah, we know we didn't get into, Anne, is we didn't get into pain. I mean, like, we really didn't talk about pain and pleasure. Let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, I think the synapses that fire when you experience pain are very similar to the ones that you experience pleasure. But not all forms of pain are, like, sexy or hot or erotic. So there are times where you'll go to a BDSM club and you'll see somebody just get wailed on with, like, floggers and whips and their back is just bright red from all of the stuff and then they get off the saint andrew's cross and they stub their toe and they're like, Ow! <laughs> there are some types of pain that feel more like you know the pain of getting a back massage or the pain that triggers that eroticism and there are some types of pain that's like of the the toe stubbing variety i i don't think i know anybody for whom toe stubbing is a kink so to go back to the beginning of your answer, the not the receptors, what did you say? Like in the brain, it's similar. I think it's similar neural pathways or, or similar things that fire. Again, I have to go back to the paper where I found this research. It's just, I just don't have it off the top of my head. So there's a connection in the brain. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. But one thing I will say um, in terms of like menopause, because you had asked, what are some things that folks with menopause need to know? There are a lot of women for whom menopause means that having penetrative sex with either a toy or like an actual penis can be very painful. And BDSM can provide a whole new vocabulary and set of options for like erotic connection that don't necessarily require penetration in order to get that like connection and that, you know, erotic charge. So in that way, I do think that BDSM can be very useful for folks who are in that situation. Although a lot of times as we get older, we get pains, we get injuries, we're not as flexible as we used to be. And so a lot of folks who get older will have to find ways of like adapting to work with their changing body as they go through kink. But like I said, because kink isn't a vocabulary that can be adapted any a number of ways, there are all kinds of possibilities to make those activities more accessible. Are there a lot of clubs, uh, kink clubs? Depends on where you are and depends on what the, the legal situation is. Here in Toronto, um, there are a, a few sex clubs because that's allowed here. Um, there are some private BDSM clubs, and I think there are some other places, too. Um, in Massachusetts, it's actually illegal to have BDSM clubs, so everything is private. And so it, it really depends on where you are in terms of what's accessible. So I got kink as a vocabulary, BDSM as a dance, mm -hmm. <laughs> and what other yummy, yummy little takeaways can we leave our listeners with? Not only is kink a dance, but there's also an entire culture and history that's informing all of the things that we do and all of the ways that we understand consent. And a lot of that came out of the gay and uh, lesbian leather communities. So a lot of the iconography that we see comes from this very, very rich and deep-seated sort of cultural 
background. There's a, a museum called the Leather Archives and Museum that's in Chicago. You can look at their virtual galleries, or if you have listeners in Chicago, I'd recommend making a visit. You will see a lot of penises in various illustrations because most of the leather community came out of the gay community. And also leather folk were also a, an essential part of the response to the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. And it was actually like leather communities in San Francisco that created the AIDS Emergency Fund. So it's a connection and a dance and an interpersonal interaction, but it's also a community and a culture. And I think that that can get missed. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you you brought it back to that. So much to explore. Thank you so much. So it's like a little bit of a taste. I, I hope you uh, your listeners learn something new. Me too. Yeah. I definitely have. Thank you so much, Samantha, for being here. We love hub. So Liz, I just find that there's so much more that you can get into. Like that 30 minutes just went by yeah. so quickly. And the main idea or theme that I got out of this conversation was communication. It seems to be all about communication. Um, I think if you're going to engage if you desire to engage with it and you engage with it in a, in a healthy way where it fuels your relationship, your own sexuality, you have to have good communication. I think as she was really saying is that it's a cornerstone of it to really know what you want, to communicate what you want, to um, be able to like be in integrity with that in the scene and then to know what the aftercare and, and, and communicate that aftercare afterwards. I mean, it's all communication. Yeah, I was actually surprised about the aftercare. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I know. Yeah. I knew nothing about it until my, my certification. And I was like, this is so cool. What I really loved about it, um, really from the get-go, is this idea of it as a dance and this energy exchange. And I think for a lot of people who live I'll say maybe their professional lives are very, they always have to be in control. For them, it's like a real, such a release to say, someone else take control. Someone else mm -hmm. tell me what to do. You get on top, you know? And it's like, it, it's almost like a, a nervous system thing that, that they need that fuels them that it ultimately probably is, is a turn on. We Love Hub is produced by Anne Katari and Liz Ilkenfritz. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Love Hub. That's V L U V H U B. 